it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, May 15th, 2015. All right, looking at notes here. I feel so disorganized, it's not even funny. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, slow, slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy, bizarre, just off the chain, weird things being said by people out there who really ought to know better because they are teachers in Christ's church. And it's not my church, it's his church. And so if since it's his church, the things we teach, the things we do, the things we confess, well, they got to be carefully looked at to make sure that we're conveying the proper sense of what God's word says. And if we're not, we're, you know, we're, we're deceiving people. We could be self-deceived, you know, and, uh, you know, how do they say ignorance is no excuse. You know, you think of it this way. Oftentimes we learn false doctrine from people we trust, you know, it's like, you know, well, back when I was a kid, you know, pastor so-and-so, you know, he's, he believed this. So he, you know, he was a nice guy. I mean, he came over to our house and, you know, ate with our family from time to time. So he had to be, you know, telling us the truth, right? Yeah, just because he's a nice guy and he means well doesn't necessarily mean that he rightly handles God's word. And then you take a look at today's modern megachurch movement and you sit there and you go, well, did you look at Rick Warren? I mean, the guy's got, you know, 15 different satellite, saddleback camp eye in strategic places throughout the world. And he's got a gazillion people showing up Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to, to hear his messages. So that means God's blessing him, right? He, and what he's saying is true, correct? No, actually, um, just because hundreds of thousands of people, you know, show up to Saddleback churches and multi-sites every Sunday doesn't mean that what Rick Warren is saying is true. The only way you can determine whether or not what somebody is saying is true is by opening up God's word using sound biblical exegesis, good hermeneutics, putting passages back into context, and comparing what the pastor is saying to what God's word says. Now, you know, I, I, you know, I don't talk about this too often, but everybody knows this. You know, I am a confessional Lutheran. You ask me, you know, what, you know, I pastor a church that is a Lutheran church, and uh, and so you know, in the Lutheran services, you know, if you were to go to a Lutheran service that follows the liturgy, or even if they don't follow the liturgy, but they have you know an order service where uh, the creed is confessed or one of the creeds, and you think well, a creed, what's that? Yeah, believe it or not, <laughs> you know, the church for millennia, and that, and I mean this for millennia have been using creeds. These are concise doctrinal statements that are summaries of God's word, and they're true not because the creeds in and of themselves are authoritative. They're true because they say the same thing as God's word. It's just really that simple. And so uh, in uh, in the Lutheran, uh, you know, way the Lutheran service goes, the pastor 
You know, he preaches the sermon, and then shortly after the sermon is preached, the church, you know, confesses, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and there's a reason why it comes after the sermon. Yeah, the reason why is actually it's a, there's a fact-checking function going on in there. It's not the only reason why it's there, but uh, there's a fact-checking thing. So the idea, if your pastor so-and-so gets up and starts preaching nonsense— and saying weird kind of things that doesn't sound like the Christian faith, yeah, then what happens is when you're confessing the creed, you know, you sit there and go, okay, this is this is a summary of the uh, of the Christian faith, you know, particularly the Nicene Creed. Um if if what the pastor said contradicts the you know the creed, then we know there's something seriously wrong. And the thing that is seriously wrong is that they're teaching false doctrine. So yeah, in fact I would basically argue if you're teaching anything contrary to the Nicene Creed, you're not correctly teaching God's word. You're teaching false doctrine. And so there's a, you know, a fact-checking function. And so here at Fighting for the Faith, from time to time, I make this point, and I'll make it up again here right now, and that's this. Don't take my word for it. I never, and I, and I mean this, I never want you to come to Fighting for the Faith with an open mind, ever. No, you come to Fighting, faith, fighting for the Faith with an open mind. Bible. It's real simple. I'm a, I'm a human being. That means, yeah, I'm a sinner. Okay. And it's not that human beings w- originally were designed to be sinners. That's not it at all. We were created good, very good. We were created in the image of God. But as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God and our re- and their rebellion against our good creator, every single person who was born a direct descendant of Adam and Eve, according to the natural way in which things happen, They're born dead in trespasses and sins. And even though I've been made alive in Christ and I have and I've been regenerated and I have a new nature, I also still have my sinful nature. And so the idea is, is that Christians are the the phrase is that's a fancy phrase. And you'll hear from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith. It's simul justus et peccator. It means simultaneously justified. That means we're declared righteous because of what Christ has done for us. And we're still sinner. Yeah, this is the reason why Christians, the, the the Christian life feels like a life where you're at odds with yourself. You have desires to sin, and you have desires to curb sin, and you know you've got these conflicting things going on. This is what it's like to be a Christian. So, because I still have a sinful nature, I have not been resurrected from the grave, and I do not have the new spiritual bodies, uh, you know, one of them that we're all going to be getting when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. As a result of that, because I'm a sinner, I have I have sinful shortcomings. I may not correctly understand what God's word is saying. And so the idea here is never take my word for it. Compare even what I'm saying to what God's word says. And this is what scripture teaches regarding that in Acts chapter 17, that, that the Bereans did this with the apostle Paul. Yeah, this is a guy who is an eyewitness to the resurrection, the Apostle Paul. You know, when, when G, uh, Paul showed up in Berea, the Bereans didn't sit there and go, yeah, that uh, Apostle Paul guy, he, you know, he just seems like a really, in fact, I feel really good. You know, he makes me just feel super special inside of me every time he preaches. And so he must be telling me the truth. <laughs> no. <laughs> and they didn't likewise say, yeah, that Paul guy, everywhere he goes, he seems to stir up trouble. So he can't be teaching the truth. Nope. They didn't say that either. Instead, what they did is they compared Paul's gospel 
to the word of God to see if what he was saying is true. And scripture says of the Bereans that they had a more noble character than the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians didn't do that. So, yeah, that's the idea. Anybody coming to you with a message regarding God, you compare it to God's word in context. And if what they're saying is true, you believe it. And if it's not true, yeah, no, you don't believe it. In fact, if the teacher makes it a habit of wrongly teaching God's word, you are biblically duty-bound to no longer support that minister and sit under his teaching and uh, you know, because he's dangerous and he's not, he's not pointing you to Christ. He's leading you astray, and you, and you have a biblical duty to warn others. Yeah, Read your Bible. You'll find these things in there. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going <clears> to <throat> we, – we got three things we're going to do. Here in hour number one, but build a little bit off of uh, yesterday's program regarding um, birthing and anointings and conceptions and things like that. And uh, play for you a uh, audio from this past <laughs> a performance from Granger Community Church, one of the foremost uh, seeker-driven, purpose-driven churches in all of the purpose-driven network. Uh, Mark Beeson uh, holds court. There's the vision casting leader. And, uh, of course, you know, every year when Mother's Day comes along, you you got to come up with some kind of relevant, entertaining, you know, parody of some, you know, culturally popular song, right? Um, so if you're a fan of Frozen, yeah, uh, they, the uh, the folks there at uh, Granger have taken the uh, the song Let It Go and added their own Mother's Day lyrics to it. And uh, we have to share this with you because it's just that bad. Then we're going to switch gears and we got a Kerry uh, Shook update. Yeah, Kerry Shook. Um, he, his latest sermon series is based upon the NBC hit series, The Voice. And uh, no joke, he's got one of those red spinning chairs, you know, and the red curtain and everything, uh, you know, for the voice. And the the sermon series apparently is all about teaching you how to subjectively hear God speaking into your heart. And uh, we'll take a look at uh, the passages that he's pointing to there to see if what he's saying is actually what the God, what God's word teaches on this. We'll, you know, somewhere in there we'll take a break, and then we're going to end off our number one with email. Yeah, we got another email sitting. I'm always racing to catch up, and of course, no sooner do I feel like I'm getting close to actually catching up on email, than you know, I add more email to the queue of uh, you know questions that I got to answer on the air. And then in hour number two, we're going to listen to two fantastic sermons from Mark Bestuel. Mark Bestuel. Uh, we featured him before here, and uh, one of the reasons I chose Mark is because uh, his sermon from uh, was it uh, May third? May third, he was preaching. He kind of wove together the Gospel of John and First John, the uh, the Gospel and the Epistle reading, to talk about the difference between justification and sanctification, and keeping those two separate. And that will build off of uh, one of the emails that I'm going to be answering today, dealing with the concept of what's called infused grace. And yeah, uh, you, you, you just you gotta buckle in. You, you'll see what I'm talking about when we get there. So that'll be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And uh, since we're starting off with a musical piece, and you know, I don't know exactly what to uh, to label this as. This would be more along the lines of what I would consider a relevancy fail. Uh, but uh, oh, it's it's performs oh so well. So if you're a Frozen fan, sit down and make yourself comfortable. And uh, here's Mommy's uh, version of "Let It Go," you know, for Mother's Day from Granger Community Church. 
It's bedtime, honey. You don't need another drink of water. Now go to sleep. I love you. Good night. Socks off white laundry mountain tonight. Not a clean pair to be seen. A kingdom of aggravation. And it looks like I'm the queen. The baby's crying like a tiny jagged high. Never sleeping in heaven knows I tried. Don't lose it now, don't let them see. Be the good mom you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Well, I stopped my toe. I said no, I said no, don't turn away and slam that door. I said share your best toys when you play, bring the tantrums on. That pout never bothered me anyway, I mean it, back to bed. So my question, you know, in the middle of this is, um, what exactly is the purpose? What function does a Broadway mom parody version of Let It Go play in a Christian church service? What exactly is the function of this? It's funny how such chaos comes from people oh so small. Joy that overwhelms me when they learn to kick a What they can do, they test my limits and break through. They'll learn right, wrong, and it's from me. They'll see. I said no, I said no, and now you dare to ask me why. Cause I said so, I said so, and no, you're Your path and underwear here on the ground. Why can't you put it in the laundry basket all around? Will you slow down before you end up in the cast? I've said a hundred times the trash goes in the trash. I don't think she hit that note. That stuff never bothered me anyway. Coming, honey. Mommy's here. 
All right. So, yeah, uh, clearly that is uh, entertaining. But um, isn't – I mean, is the purpose of a church to be entertaining? Uh, you know, I mean, I go to the theaters to be entertained. I watch television to be entertained. I watch sports and baseball to be entertained. I don't go to church to be entertained. That's not what church is for. Uh, entertainment is kind of a worldly thing, if you would. Why would I bring inter- – yeah. So what exactly is the function of this? How does this help people become disciples of Jesus? <clears throat> and what is – does it serve a worship function? I mean, I'm I'm just curious. Anyway, moving along. Yeah, that means it's time for a Carrie Shook Let's update. Let's go, girls. That's what I say every time I listen to Carrie Shook. All right, so uh, Carrie Shook's latest sermon series is, uh, well, no joke. He has the voices, you know, the the, heat, the TV hit show, The Voice. He's got the red chair that turns around, and the theme is based all on that, and uh, with the red curtains and everything. And uh, so this is all about teaching you how to hear God's voice. And the problem is that um, the way he teaches us, he's not teaching what God's word actually says. Let's listen in. Here we go. Series on how to hear the voice. The only voice that really matters, God's voice. I mean, how do you really know if it's God speaking to your heart or it's just you thinking it out? Yeah, that that is a good question. You'll notice the utter subjectivity here. Um, you see, the thing is, is that Scripture actually teaches that it's sufficient. No joke. Um, if you have a Bible, it, it, we're going to be looking at Second Timothy chapter three, and I want to show you what Scripture says about itself. Second Timothy chapter three. Verse 14, Paul writing to young Pastor Timothy, and so this is a pastoral letter. This is one of the pastoral epistles. Here's what it says. Uh, Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says this, But as for you, young young man, and Paul, by the way, is getting close to the end of his life here, by the way. Um, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood You have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, by the way, you know, if you were, were to read that link that I put up with the uh, program a couple of days ago where I answered the – I think it was Monday's episode where I linked to the uh, Wayne Grudem uh, portion on uh, you know the canon of Scripture. Grudem actually does a good job in that uh, article of showing how the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter recognized that what they were writing was Scripture. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that and uh, and that what each other were writing were scripture. Yeah, Peter in particular singles out Paul's letters and says that they're scripture. So you know, so the idea here is is that uh, you know, as Paul's getting close to the end of his life, he's writing this pastoral epistle. This is one of the last things he says before he's beheaded. You know, uh, by order of uh, the emperor Nero. And so he, his admonition is not to, you know, to young Timothy and look inside and try to figure out what God is speaking inside of your heart. That's not what he says. Here's what he says. He says, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's, it's theonoustos. It's inspired by, by the Holy Spirit, if you would. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Uh-huh. And the uh, the and the ESV the uh, word for complete by the way, you know, they the, the word the Greek word they translate for complete uh is um the uh, artios and it means to be fully qualified. So the man of God may be fully qualified, totally completely qualified and equipped for some good works. No, it says every every single good work. The, all of them. So the idea is, is that you, you want to know what, when God is speaking to you? It's real simple. If you're hearing God's word, the written word of God, rightly preached, you're hearing God speak to you. When you open up your Bible and you read it and you are rightly understand, you are hearing God speak to you. No subjectivity at all. It's, it's just as simple. And if you want to hear God's voice, by the way, audibly, Read God's word out loud or attend a church where the pastor or somebody, you know, you know, from the lectern actually reads whole portions of scripture here at fighting for the faith. When we play like a Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley sermon and you hear Pastor Charmley read the text and then exegete it, you're you're actually hearing God speaking through his written word. So, yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of fascinating here what's going on. But we'll uh, let Carrie Shook continue because I just love listening to Carrie Shook. God's never spoken to me in an audible voice. I guess he knows that would freak me out too much. But he speaks to my heart every day. And the real secret to true success in life is learning how to recognize and respond to God's voice. Learning how to listen and obey. Uh-huh. So the, the secret to success in life, yes, you really want to be successful in life. You got to learn how to recognize subjectively God speaking to your heart and obey. Hmm, there's a legal thing going on there. Maybe a confusion of long gospel. We continue. It changes everything. Well, this weekend we're just going to introduce the series and really kick it off next weekend with a real practical biblical message on how God speaks to us. What are the ways God uses to speak directly and clearly to us? Uh, the written word of God. That's how God speaks to us. And that way, every single Christian from you know, from across all of the different countries in the world, 
um, across all of the different centuries that Christianity is to exist, they are being they are being told the exact same message. There's one faith, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We're going to start this weekend by just talking about what God's voice sounds like, the characteristics of God's voice, because that's the first thing you need to start getting accustomed to. Now, so in order to, f- to learn how to recognize, you got to do, what does his voice sound like? Does he sound like this? Or does he sound like, hi, this is the Holy Spirit, and, uh, you know, I, I, you know I, I'm really excited that Gary Shuck is teaching you all how to hear my voice, because, you know, I, you know, uh, I, I just, you know, the world is really confusing, and, and I need more people to be able to hear my voice so they can communicate the different messages that I'm trying to reach you know, them with. And if, if you're not hearing me, then, you know, you can't deliver those messages. And, you know, I need more people like Patricia King. Does, see, does God's voice sound like that? You know, yeah, you, you kind of get the point where I'm going here. Now, we at the moment are up on our first break. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous edition, of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we'll continue with Kerry Shook, and then we will get to our email segment. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome, George Hayworth and Raymond Stewart. Whoa, dude, your GPS knows, like, who's getting in the car and stuff? Yeah, you know, it's like the newest model. My dad works for some big technology company called Cyberdyne. And, you know, he gave it to me as a birthday gift, but, man, it's so smart, it's, like, really creepy. Huh, okay, man, this is cool. I guess we're going over to Luke's house, then? Yeah. Hey, GPS! What can I do for you? Could you, like, plot our route to Luke's house? Plotting route to Luke's house. There is an accident on the I-95 freeway approximately 10 miles from your current location. Do you wish to take the side streets? Well, I guess we're gonna have to. Yeah, go ahead and take the side streets. Recalculating. And we're on our way, dude! 
In 300 feet, make a left turn. So, Ray, what'd you think about the sermon last Sunday? Yeah, I thought it was okay, I guess. Okay? Dude, it, like, totally changed my life. What do you mean, bro? In half a mile, make a right turn. Well, I was meditating on the whole Jesus died for me thing, and then I realized that by doing that, Jesus was saying to me, Dude, you are so worth it. Yeah, I know that, man. Yeah, but it's even better than that. Really, man? Like, how so? Well, think about it. Not only does Jesus' death prove that I was worth it, well, that also means that I have some ridiculously important dream destiny that I'm supposed to fulfill. Well, how do you figure? Well, Jesus is the Son of God, right? Right. Well, that means it wasn't some third-rate angel that died for me, right? Yeah, you're right. Turn right in 500 feet. Fact. Jesus, he's like the most important dude in the whole universe. And if Jesus is the most important dude in the whole universe, well, he wouldn't waste his time dying for a nobody. So, the way I figure, that means I must really be a somebody. And, and that means that the reason why Jesus died for me is so that I can accomplish some ridiculously important destiny. I mean, after all, important people don't waste their time dying for unimportant people. Make a right turn in 50 feet. Alright, dude, I think I'm tracking with you now. So I'm thinking, I've got like some uber cosmic destiny that I've got to achieve. I bet there's some planet on the other side of the galaxy that I'm the one that's supposed to save it. You've just missed the turn. Recalculating. So does that make you like Luke Skywalker or something? Not even. I mean, I've got to be way more important than Luke Skywalker. In 500 feet, please make an illegal U-turn. So you're like Yoda. Don't insult my greatness, dude. Remember, the Son of God died for me. Whoa, 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 dude. Like, who would be greater than Yoda? I feel like I'm being ignored. The Force itself. Dude, you think you're as important as the Force? That would make you, like, God... Now you're finally starting to see the light, dude. You morons. You are both wrong. You are both sinners who truly deserve death and hell. You're not God. You're not the Force. You're not Yoda. And you're certainly not Luke Skywalker. You're just two guys who are ten feet from the edge of a very treacherous cliff. Oh. Uh, well, I guess if I was a god, I would have seen this coming. Now you're finally starting to see the light. Ah! Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. 
click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that uh, people who are out there saying that God is sub- supposed to subjectively speak to you and guide you like, you know, Jedi receiving the Force, that they're not right. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to post office box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, Zip code 58208. Let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. Let's continue with Kerry Shook and see what he's talking about regarding the voice. What is his voice like? So would you open your Bibles to John chapter 10? Yeah, this is the uh, standard proof text, by the way. John chapter 10, standard proof text, and it's not correctly handled, regarding um, hearing God's voice. And we're going to see what Jesus said about the voice. So would you stand in honor of God's word, Woodlands Church? And I want to welcome everyone worshiping with us at our satellite campuses and everyone worshiping with us through our broadcast ministry around the world. And all of you here in the Woodlands, we build our lives, our families, and our church on the word of God. It's the only thing solid enough to build a strong life. So would you follow along with me? Anyone refusing to walk through the gate into a sheepfold who sneaks over the wall must surely be a thief. For a shepherd comes to the gate. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice and come to him. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He walks ahead of them and they follow him, for they recognize his voice. They won't follow a stranger, but will run from him, for they don't recognize his voice. Dear God, I thank you that you want to speak to each and every person within the sound of my voice. You want to speak to them, Lord. You want to speak to them a personal and powerful word that changes everything. And I pray that you would open our ears, our spiritual ears and our hearts to really hear you speak and respond to it so we'll never be the same again. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So God has the voice of a good shepherd, the Bible tells us. And when you come into his fold, you become one of his sheep, you get accustomed to the sound of his voice. Now, notice he's not actually exegeting this text. And over and again, I point out that the person who says, John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You know, that means God wants you to have an abundance and you need to be wealthy and rich that they're taking it out of context. Well, John 10, 10, they're taking uh, John 10, one through, you know, three, four. They're also taking it out of context. Remember this occurs 
in the context of the blind, the man who was born blind. And so Jesus here has healed a blind person. He's healed a blind man, a man blind from birth, and that guy is being raked over the coals because he was, you know, given his sight on the Sabbath. And so there's an uh, there's a battle. If it, there is a battle going on between the Pharisees and Jesus, and so the fact is is that the people that Jesus is referring to, the false teachers, uh, and you know, and the hirelings. They're standing right there. John nine thirty five. Let me read. Jesus heard that they had cast the man out. They had cast the man who was born blind out of the uh, out of the synagogue. And uh, having found him, Jesus said to him, "Do you believe in the Son of Man?" He answered, "And who is he, sirs, that I might believe in him?" And Jesus said to him, "You have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you." And he said, "Lord, I believe." And he worshipped Jesus. Jesus said, "For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may be may see, and those who uh, may see may become blind." Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, "Are we also blind?" Jesus said to them, "If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we." see your guilt remains and now jesus tells a parable a parable in a sense it really directed against the pharisees amen amen jesus says truly truly i say to you he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way that man is a thief and a robber who's jesus referencing there the Pharisees. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes out before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow for they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now notice here, this is a parable. This is not something literal. Jesus is, if you would, pointing to a cultural thing that they would all be familiar with, okay, to make a point. And so if you're familiar with shepherding of the day, one of the things that would happen is is that shepherds, you know, would have different flocks and they would all put them into a sheep pen at night and a strange thing would happen in the morning. And that is, is that when the shepherds would come to gather up their sheep, what they would end up doing is literally they would open up the gate to the sheep pen, uh, the sheep pen and then the shepherd would call to his sheep. And, you know, and the sheep knew their shepherd's voice. And even though there was five or six flocks all mixed together, that what would happen is, is that when, you know, when the shepherd of those of the sheep that were his would call to his sheep, they recognized his voice and those sheep would come out and follow him and just, and, and he would lead them out to pasture. And so that's the metaphor, if you would here. And Jesus is not here saying, therefore, If you are my sheep, you're going to hear me speaking directly to you. That's not what Jesus is saying. And I got to tell you this. There are so many emails I've received over the years who people who've been taught that this passage is saying that you, you, if you're a Christian, then you're going to hear Jesus speaking directly to your heart. And you know what ends up happening is they end up feeling terrible. And the reason they feel terrible is because, well, they've never had Jesus speak directly to them. And they're being told, well, it says here, my sheep know my voice. And if you've never heard Jesus's voice, well, then what does that mean? Well, you may not even be a Christian. 
And so this then gets turned into basically a baseball bat that they are using to bludgeon people with the law. You need to be hearing God's voice. And if you're not hearing Jesus's voice, oh, you've done something wrong. But of course, those people who are hearing God's voice, they've done something right. You know, and and they they're obedient. They're super spiritual. They're mature. And the reason you know that they're mature is because, well, they're hearing God's voice and you're not. So you must they must be doing something right. You must be doing something wrong. And this is to utterly confuse law and gospel and to make it so that somehow, you know, the gifts of the spirit are contingent upon spiritual maturity. And nowhere in scripture are the gifts of the spirit given on the basis of spiritual maturity. In fact, I would point you to Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 10, we have Cornelius, the Roman centurion, the the, the real, truly first Gentile believer, if you would. And uh, he, he, upon hearing the gospel message of Christ crucified for our sins and raised again on the third day for our justification, he, he believes and he is filled with the Spirit and begins proclaiming and prophesying and speaking in tongues. Does anyone want to make the claim that somebody who is a Christian for you know 30 seconds is more spiritually mature than somebody who's been a Christian for you know, 10, 15, 20 years? No, of course not. Spiritual maturity is never the basis by which God the Holy Spirit gives his gifts. Not in Scripture. They're gifts. If they're based upon spiritual maturity, then they're spiritual rewards and badges of maturity. And you can point to them and say, I'm more mature than you because, look, I, you know, God does this in my life. And see, that's the pernicious thing here. You know, when somebody starts preaching this text out of context like this, it creates all kinds of guilt in people because they feel like, uh, I'm I I'm just not measuring up because God never speaks to me, and the, the problem is not the person who thinks that. The problem is the person who's making that person feel that way by twisting God's word. John ten does not teach that God, that Jesus wants to speak into your heart. That's not what this text says at all. The longer you're a Christ follower, and the more you tune into Him and tune other things out, the more you learn to recognize. The characteristics of God's voice. And this yeah, there's that maturity thing here. You see what he said? Tells us three characteristics of God's voice. First, it's persistent. God's voice is persistent. Yeah, um, yeah. John 10 does not teach that God's voice is persistent. In verse 2, it says, for a shepherd comes through the gate. So the good shepherd comes through the gate. He comes through the door, but he doesn't knock the door down. See, that's ridiculous. What are you talking about? He's not engaging in exegesis. This is totally twisting God's word. Voice is persistent, but it's not coercive. He never coerces. He, he never forces. So if you don't take time to listen to him. If you don't take time, yeah, well. Eventually he'll stop speaking. Oh, no. Oh, no. I, I never took the time and now God's done speaking. No, he's not. God is not done speaking to you. You have the written word of God. Open up your Bible. God speaks. All of Scripture is God breathed. When you read the God, when you read God's word, God is speaking to you. I think you kind of get the point there that uh, you know what's going on. And this is a false doctrine. This is a false teaching. And unfortunately, it it is a form of works righteousness. It's a form of works righteousness in the form that well, the the one who is really spiritually mature and has attuned himself so that he he's learned how to hear. 
the subjective voice of God. Yeah, and then, you know, the other person who's just not as practiced. Yeah, they might... They they didn't realize God was talking, and so God's now mad, and he stopped communicating altogether. Yeah, utter confusion of law and gospel. All right, moving along. going to end up the hour with a little bit of email here. First email comes from Oskari from Finland. That's his name. His name is Oskari, and he's from Finland. And he says, hello, I would like to hear your thoughts on open-air preaching and street evangelism. Should we go to streets and proclaim the gospel open-air or in one uh, or in one-to-one conversations? How should the gospel be presented in conversations? Your thoughts on Ray Comfort. Okay. There's many questions here, many questions here, and I would point you to the book of Acts. And the idea is is that the, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, he would uh, preach Christ in the marketplace. He would preach Christ. He had a stand in Ephesus. He had like a standing gig in the Hall of Tyrannus. When the Hall of Tyrannus wasn't being used for its other functions, the Apostle Paul was using it to proclaim Christ. You know, you think of uh, Paul in his meeting before the Areopagus. So he, my, my, my thoughts on evangelism, let me put it this way. My thoughts on evangelism are this. I think Scripture teaches us to go and evangelize anywhere we are. You know, as long as, long as it's not going to be one of those things where, you know, for instance, you don't want to, if you're at work and you're on the clock and uh, you're supposed to be earning a paycheck, it's a form of stealing, and you got to remember this. You know, you, you don't take your neighbor's stuff, and your neighbor also is your employer. So you don't use stuff on your time on the clock to evangelize and proselyze. That's not it at all. So if somebody wants somebody at it's you know at work says you know hey can you tell me about this Christianity stuff? It's you say I'd be happy to. Let's wait till we're off the clock, you know, and so the or let's go, you know, when we're on lunch, we'll talk about it then. But don't do it on the clock because your employer is paying you by the hour to be producing. And when you when you evangelize on the clock, it's a it's a bad thing. So my thoughts are Christians should be evangelizing, period. This And why? Because Scripture says to do this and Scripture gives us many examples of this taking place. Private conversations, publicly, open air preaching, you know, in private homes and churches, ev- evangelize wantonly. Okay, in in fact, um, let me let me use a word here that's that isn't quite right, but I would say this: evangelize promiscuously. <laughs> do you get what I'm saying when I say it that way? So the idea is. Do it open air. Do it one on one. Do it at work. Do it, but not on the clock. Do it, you know, it, it, you, wherever you have the opportunity to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. Do so. Now, how should the gospel be presented in conversations? It's real simple. It is important for us when we when we are preaching the gospel, when we're proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for our sins, that that is the good news. In order for the good news to be understood, the bad news has to be understood. The bad news, which means Somebody's to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That requires law and gospel. So my thoughts regarding Ray Comfort are that Ray Comfort 
is uh, one of these guys who's discovered the proper distinction of law and gospel and uses it in evangelism. And uh, I think he got the idea from the Lutherans. So, you know, I think Ray Comfort is right on that when it comes to proclaiming the gospel, you have to also preach the law. So I hope that answers your questions, uh, you know, Ascari from Finland. Next email from Justin in Milton, Florida. He writes, I often uh, link people to your Four Blood Moons debunked series on YouTube. The topic comes up. I was thinking the other day, though, what if something does happen? Not saying that the blood moons will have anything to do with it in reality, but you know that those who teach the blood moons thing will say that it does. Anything could happen, like a hurricane or a terrorist attack or something like that. It would be hard to convince somebody who's already convinced of this teaching that the events are not related. Now, I completely agree with you, Justin. And the idea is this, is that this is what's called a self-fulfilling prophecy. Notice that those people talking about the blood moons, they're not saying what's going to happen. They just say something's going to happen. So, you know, and so the idea then is, is that all they got to do now is wait and wait for something to happen. Say, see, it's related to the blood moons. So if uh, BB Netanyahu is playing tennis with uh, Barack Obama and he pulls out his, you know, he pulls a muscle in his back and he has to go to the hospital, they'll say, see, it's the four blood moons. Yeah, see, yeah, that's the idea. And so what you do is you challenge people along these lines. You say, what again is scripture prophesying regarding the four blood moons? Be specific. Because you, by making them nail it down, you can you, it becomes clear that, well, something is supposed to happen. What? What exactly is supposed to happen? Well, we'll know when it happens. Right, that's called a self-fulfilling prophecy. And uh, scripture, when it prophesies, it actually gives details. It gives details so that you understand what the prophecy, which prophecy is being fulfilled and what it is. You kind of get the idea there. All right, next email. This comes from Joe in Michigan, and this is going to take a little bit of time to answer this one. Complex email, <clears throat> although it's not very long. Joe writes, he says, uh, hey, dear pirate, while listening to Brian Houston do the two-step, I picture it like a good pump fake in basketball. I was pondering, what role does imputed versus infused righteousness play in how some of these pastors take a portion of Scripture that is really meant to focus on Christ and are able to say, look, we can do that too? I listen quite regularly, and I do not recall you discussing imputed versus infused righteousness. What is the difference? Is that a factor in how the word gets mishandled? Oh, man. (laughs) The answer to your question is yes, it is. It is is an absolute uh, factor in how uh, the Bible gets mishandled by many people who are in Christendom, especially seeker-driven church leaders. Now, which requires me to do a little bit of time (laughs) explaining what it is that we are talking about, okay? So this is going to require us to do a little bit of work here. In fact, if, if you have a piece of paper, I would like you to pull out a piece of paper and write down the answers to some questions that I'm going to give you. I'll give you the uh, the answers to them as well. But uh, we're going to ask a, a, a question. And here's the question. Are you functionally a Catholic or are you truly, in, in the truest sense of the word, Protestant evangelical? Okay. Now, I know some, there are some Lutherans who do not like to, to be called Protestants. I'm using the term in its broadest sense. You got to remember the Protestant Reformation. Everybody historically says Luther is the thing, the person who kicked that off. So here's the question: Are you 
are you functionally Catholic or are you actually truly Protestant? Do you are you do you believe in infused righteousness or or do you believe in declared righteousness would be kind of the, the, the way to put it. So here's question number one. We'll take a little quiz and it's going to be either A or B. OK, so, you know, select one. Is this which is which do you believe scripture teaches A or B? Here's A. God gives a man right standing with himself by mercifully accounting him innocent and virtuous, or B, God gives a man right standing with himself by actually making him into an innocent and virtuous person. Question two, again, select A or B. A, God gives a man right standing with himself by placing Christ's goodness and virtue to his credit, or B, God gives a man right standing with himself by putting Christ's goodness and virtue into his heart. Okay, question three, select either A or B. Here we go. A, uh, A, God accepts the believer because of the moral excellence found in Jesus Christ, or B, God makes the believer acceptable by infusing Christ's moral excellence into his life. Number four, Select A or B. A, if a sinner becomes born again, regenerate, transformed in character, he will achieve a right standing with God. Or B, if a sinner accepts right standing with God by faith in Christ's sinless life and atoning death, then he will experience transformation in his character. Number five, A or B. A, we believe, sorry, we receive right standing with God by faith alone in the blood of Christ. Or B, we receive right standing with God by faith, which has become active by love. 6. A. We achieve right standing with God by having Christ live out his life of obedience in us. Or B. We achieve right standing with God by having Christ's life of obedience reckoned to us. Number 7. Select A or B. A. We achieve right standing with God by following Christ's example with the help of the Holy Spirit and by his enabling grace. B. We follow Christ's example because faith in his sinless atoning life has already given us a right standing with God. Next, as uh, A, number 8, A. God first pronounces that we are good in his sight, then gives us his spirit to begin to make us good. Or B, God sends his spirit to make us good, and then he will pronounce that we are good. Number nine, A or B, Christ's intercession at God's right hand gives us favor in in the sight of God. Or B, it is the indwelling Christ in the heart that gives us favor in God's sight. And number 10, A or B, A, only by faith in doing and and, and dying of Christ can we fully satisfy the claims of the Ten Commandments. Um, or B, by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, we can fully satisfy the claims of the Ten Commandments. Okay? Now, you'll notice here that there's kind of a theme going on here. And the Roman Catholic Church teaches justification by infused righteousness. Now, let me read to you a portion of, uh, of, a, of an article written on this from an old article from Present Truth magazine. This was a magazine put together by guys who had come out of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And they they did a spectacular job 
uh, on this article, you know, regarding the Roman Catholic idea of justification. So listen to this. The Catholic doctrine of justification may be accurately summarized as follows. One, justification is the internal renovation and the renewing of a man, i.e. human sanctification. Two, justification comes by an infusion of grace. Man is justified on the basis of what the Holy Spirit has done in him. And three, justification means that man himself is made just and is made pleasing to God in his own person. So in other words, the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification is that God by grace turns you into somebody who is pleasing to God rather than God by grace. It basically imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Christ. And since God makes you pleasing before him, it is your job to keep yourself pleasing to God. And that's the rub. That's the basic thing. And so, so much of evangelical preaching today is based on this idea that you, you know, you know, the the cross gets you in, but it's your job to keep you clean. It's your job to keep you clean so that you can be worthy to go to heaven. And that's the difference between justification by grace through faith is, is God's imputed righteousness, Christ's imputed righteousness, as opposed to God's infused righteousness, whereby you are made clean, you are made holy, and then it's up to you to keep it. This is why mortal and venial sins come into play. And so in Roman Catholic doctrine, the person who is truly blessed, if you would, is the person who is baptized on their deathbed because they are made pleasing to God and don't have the opportunity to go out and sin and um, and soil their garments, so to speak. So coming back then to our questionnaire, the question comes up, well, what are the answers to the uh, questions that we just read? And let me give them to you. So let's go back through it. Um, uh, number one, the uh, question number one, the, the, the two options are one, A, God gives a man right standing with himself by mercifully accounting him innocent and virtuous. In other words, crediting him with Christ's righteousness or B, God gives a man right standing with himself by actually making him into an innocent and virtuous person. The correct answer is A. If you said B, yeah, you're, you're still, you may be, you know, misunderstanding God's grace and might be a closet Catholic in your theology. Number two, okay, the answer for number two, again, this one is also A. Let me read them again. God gives a man right standing with himself by placing Christ's goodness and virtue to his credit. You are credited with Christ's righteousness. And or B, which A is the right answer, B is the Roman Catholic answer. God gives a man right standing with himself by putting Christ's goodness and virtue into his heart. Number three, um, the correct answer for number three is also A. And A is God accepts the believer because of the moral excellence found in Jesus Christ. The fault, the wrong answer is B, God makes the believer acceptable by infusing Christ's moral excellence into his life. Number four, the correct answer is B. Let me let me uh, read the uh, uh, the correct answer first. B is if a sinner accepts right standing with God by faith in Christ's sinless life and atoning death, he will then experience transformation in character. That is the biblical teaching. And A is the Roman Catholic teaching, and it's false. If a believer becomes born again, he will achieve right standing with God. Yeah, the difference between infused righteousness versus uh, declared righteousness or imputed righteousness. 
And then uh, number six, number six, the correct answer. Uh, wait, uh, yeah, the correct. Sorry, number five. The correct answer for number five is A. Um, A says, we receive right standing with God by faith alone in the blood of Christ. That's correct. The Roman Catholic doctrine, the false one, is B. We receive right standing with God by faith, which has become active by love. Uh, yeah, that's the false teaching there. Number six, the correct answer is B. Let me read the correct answer first. We achieve right standing with God by having Christ's life of obedience reckoned to us. That's, again, Christ's righteousness reckoned to our account. And uh, that's the correct answer. B, the false answer is a Roman Catholic answer. We achieve a right standing with God by having Christ live out his life of obedience in us. And that's infused righteousness. Number seven, the correct answer for number seven is B. And let me read the right answer first. We follow Christ's example uh, because faith in his sinless atoning life has already given us a right standing with God. That's the biblical answer. And uh, the false answer, the Roman Catholic answer is A. We achieve right standing with God by following Christ's example with the help of the Holy Spirit and his enabling grace. Number eight, the correct answer is A, um, which is God first pronounces that we are good in his sight, then gives us his spirit to begin to make us good. That is the correct way of looking at sanctification. And then the Roman Catholic answer regarding infused grace, the false one is God sends his spirit to make us good, and then he will pronounce that we are good. This will be like uh, Rick Warren's Mulligan theory of the atonement. God gives us a do-over. No, he doesn't, okay? Uh, Number nine, the correct answer is also A, which reads, Christ's intercession at God's right hand gives us favor in the sight of God. That's correct. The false answer, the Roman Catholic answer, is B. It is the indwelling Christ in the heart that gives us favor in God's sight. That is not correct at all. And number 10, the correct answer is also A, only by faith in do, in the doing and dying of Christ can we fully satisfy the claims of the Ten Commandments. That's right, because Christ has fulfilled them for us. The Roman Catholic teaching, B, infused grace, which is the false one, says, by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, we can fully satisfy the claims of the Ten Commandments. So coming back to uh, uh, Joe in Michigan's you know, question, coming, you know, the whole Brian Houston thing, what role does infused righteousness versus imputed righteousness play in much of what's going on in these uh, teachings that we get from any of the megachurch pastors. I would say this, the vast majority of the megachurch pastors are functionally Roman Catholic. They are talking in a way as if infused righteousness is the way of salvation, and they do not understand that righteousness is imputed to us by grace through faith, and it's Christ's righteousness, the righteousness of God that is credited to our account. Just a simple passage to kind of back this up is uh, Philippians chapter 3. Let me read it for you, and then uh, we will get on to our number 2. Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes in verse 2, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, then I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless." 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them, all of his good works under the law, I count them as rubbish, as scubalon, in order that I might gain Christ, and here's the important part, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his suffering. So there, there's the idea, the imputed righteous. God's righteousness is imputed to us. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. We are declared righteous before God for Christ's sake. We are not declared righteous because God, by grace, makes us right before him, and then it's our job to you know, keep ourselves clean so that we don't fall from that grace. You, you see the difference? That's the difference. And so much of the bad preaching today is functionally Roman Catholic and teaches a form of infused righteousness rather than imputed. I know this is a complicated segment. And what I'll do with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, I'll put a link up to the um, the this uh, questionnaire, Are You Catholic or Protestant, as well as a link to the article uh, from Present Truth, The Basic Catholic Doctrine of Justification by Faith, so that you can see and understand this important distinction. And when you understand the difference between infused righteousness versus imputed righteousness, you'll see that so much of what is passing for preaching today, again, it's functionally Roman Catholic. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're going to end the week off with a couple of really good sermons from Mark Bestial. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. We're going to take a look at the ecclesiastical model employed by much of American evangelicalism today, especially as put forward by the seeker-driven movement. Chris Rosebro talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We're going to take a look at where this idea of a vision-casting leader comes from, what its main tenets are, and we're going to compare that so-called ecclesiastical office to the biblical office of pastor to see if the two are actually synonymous and interchangeable or if this concept of a vision-casting leader actually turns a pastor into a false prophet. You can meet and hear Chris Rosebro making the case against vision-casting leaders in the church June 19th and 20th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference.
All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end the week off with a couple of good sermons from Pastor Mark Vestjul. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons come to us via Calvary Lutheran Church, Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Mark Bestuel presiding. We're going to be listening to two of his sermons. The first one is the most recent, so I'm going to kind of do these backwards. And the reason I picked it is because he does an excellent job of explaining that justification is not about infused righteousness or your sanctification. So he actually makes a distinction between infused righteousness versus imputed righteousness, although I don't think he uses the terms. But I think that I thought it would be kind of a good way to follow up to what we just did in that email segment because I know your head is probably hurting and that was probably painful. Getting these two right, it's a little bit complicated, but once you get it, it's a hot, you get, and you understand it, and you never lose it. And uh, so the text he's going to be preaching from is the First uh, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and he blends it with the Gospel of John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. So I'll read both of those. And then the uh, second sermon is based upon the Gospel of Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49, and I will read that uh, right before the sermon. So let me go ahead and back off on the music, and let me go ahead and read the text that form the basis of these sermons. The first one is uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and here's how it reads. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus is the Christ has come, and has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves and ha- has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not uh, who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this... In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and has sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So that's the first text, and then he blends it with the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, which reads, 
Jesus speaking, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Here is Pastor Mark Bestule. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, our text teaches us the relationship between two very important biblical concepts. The first is justification. The second is sanctification. Every year, our confirmands study these concepts because if we are to be Christian, we must understand these terms aright. For the biblical teaching of salvation and the understanding of how daily life has to do with that salvation depends on properly distinguishing justification and sanctification. How many teachings there are, as John prophesied in his epistle, How many false teachings and false spirits are there that claim that the name Christian, that that claim the name Christian but conflate these terms justification and sanctification? And because they do, they lead people into despair about their ability to live the Christian life well enough. And they ultimately lead souls into danger or even uncertainty about their salvation. The term justification most narrowly refers to that Christ-accomplished act by which you are declared just in the sight of God. Notice justification does not make you just, holy, or righteous as if you are no longer a sinner. Rather, Paul says in Romans that we were declared just. Justification declares you not guilty, declares you atoned for, ransomed, redeemed, justified by Christ. It's not, or it's an official declaration that God makes over you, but not a declaration so much about the character or makeup of your soul as much as a declaration about Christ's merit and God's view of you because of Christ's merit. Most specifically, justification happened at the cross when Jesus declared of his atoning work for all men, it is finished. And with that word spoken, with his final breath taken, your atonement was complete. That same justification was then individually granted you in your baptism. That you might individually be gifted and receive, be gifted with the redemptive, justifying declaration of the cross. Receive the sign of the cross to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. Now, the term sanctification, it sounds a lot like justification, but sanctification refers to the process by which you are made and kept holy throughout life in preparation for eternal life. Whereas justification is a one-time declaration, sanctification is a lifetime reality. We might call it the baptismal life that is lived out in justification. 
But we have to understand the relationship between those two terms properly. Because again, some of these false teachings that John tells us test the spirits. Here's how you know the difference between truth and the spirit of error. Some of these teachings teach that sanctification, being made holy, leads to justification, being declared holy. As if God is constantly grading you and won't make a final declaration for your comfort until you reach a certain holiness. What a horrible understanding. And ultimately, it drives people to despair because it is a view of salvation by your own merit rather than by the merit and blood of Jesus Christ. Sanctification flows from justification. As God has already declared you just because of Christ, He then, in Christ, works to rid you of that old Adam that still plagues you. And that ridding of the old Adam is a lifelong process. And it won't be complete until you draw your last breath and the old Adam dies and the new Adam is with Christ in paradise. And if sanctification is a lifelong process, then it makes sense to understand that lifelong you depend upon Christ. Lifelong you depend upon His merit. Lifelong you depend upon His gifts. Now if this language of justification and sanctification, if it sounds too bookish, too doctrinal, too irrelevant for daily life, consider how Jesus ties the same doctrinal truths to daily life right into our gospel reading. He says, Every branch in me that does bear fruit, the Father prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Now, on the one hand, we certainly understand the image of that vine. And really, in the Greek, it's not a thin little spiraling vine like we sometimes think of, but it is the main source of life. Like the grape vine in the vineyard gives life to all of the branches of the grape vine. And so that main trunk, that main tree, that's the image, the vine and the branches that grow from that vine. And when a branch is cut from the main source of life, it's not the vine that is harmed, but the branch. And so also when one cuts himself off from Christ, if you cut yourself off from Christ, Christ is not harmed. He will bring life to new branches. But the one who cuts himself off from Christ is the one who is harmed eternally. So we understand that image. We get that. And that image helps us understand the commentary around it, in which Jesus teaches us about this term called sanctification, about being made holy. Sanctification is not about us making ourselves justified, as if sanctification leads to justification. Neither is sanctification about us keeping ourselves justified, as if justification is Christ's work, but sanctification is your work. Rather, as Jesus speaks of it in our text, he teaches that just as he justified us, so also does he and his Holy Spirit sanctify us, that you might remain in him. Jesus says it this way in verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. There's baptism, isn't it? Already through that word, the moment that you are going to talk about the greater picture of sanctification, of living in that baptism in that daily baptismal life, 
you have already entered into a context in which the sinner has already been justified and now stands in that justification. Already you are clean, Jesus says. But what does being clean have anything to do with the rest of Jesus' words about branches and pruning? It doesn't really seem to make sense in our text. You hear, on the one hand, being clean, but then on the other hand, this image of vine and branches, it doesn't make much sense. However, the Greek word there for clean, already you are cleansed, the Greek word there for clean, kathire, is the very same word Jesus used the verse before when he says, every branch bearing fruit, the Father kathire, the Father prunes, the Father cleanses. You see, in the Greek there is a direct relationship between already being cleansed, baptism, and the ongoing pruning and cleansing of the baptismal life. In other words, Jesus refers to your justification. You are cleansed by the word I have spoken to. You stand in Christ. But then he says, this vine and branches imagery reminds you that the baptismal life is about your need to be continually cleansed and continually pruned. Which is why he goes on by saying, abide in me. Remain there, he says. For unless you are continually kept by Jesus' ongoing cleansing and pruning of you, you will separate yourself from justification. We sinners easily convince ourselves that, well, because I'm justified, because I am already cleansed, I don't need to be cleansed or pruned anymore. We tend to see God's pruning as an unpleasant experience that prevents us from worldly fun, rather than seeing it as a cutting back that prevents us from growing wild and untamed and ultimately overgrown and ill. So then we think to ourselves, I can go on living a life outside of baptism, and in the end, I'll still be attached to the vine, I'll still be justified. All other forgiveness is simply superfluous, we tend to tell ourselves. But against such reasoning, Christ says, Remain in me. Remain in me. And the Father will continually prune and cleanse you. Notice not reattach yourself to Christ. That's not what you're doing for Him. But remain in me. And the Father will continually prune and cleanse you. Similarly, the Apostle writes of an ongoing pruning when he says, The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. Same word, cleanses. Present tense. It cleanses us here and now, even in the baptismal life. Cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And that ongoing cleansing implies ongoing confession of sins, ongoing absolution, the resulting forgiveness of others, faith in God, love of neighbor. But we, our independent streaks being what they are, we like to see it differently. That somehow Jesus cleansed once, and then it is up to us to cleanse ourselves over and over again. And so, separating ourselves from the sanctification Christ promises, we think that we can actually regraft ourselves to the vine by our own deeds and works. As if a branch, having fallen to the ground, can climb back up to the tree itself. And so people reason, I need not Christ to sanctify me. I will keep myself holy. I will sanctify myself by my good works. If only I do good to others. 
if only I love others, if only I forgive others, then I will keep myself justified. But what does Christ say to all of this? He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you think that you can keep yourself justified without depending completely on Christ's grace, Christ says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not even keep yourself in Him. If you walk away from here, confirmands, and say, I no longer need the gifts of Christ because if only I love others, then I will make certain that I am justified. Christ answers by saying, apart from me, you can't love others. If you think that your forgiveness of others is what keeps you justified, Christ says, apart from me, you cannot forgive. Friends, your bearing of good fruit does not keep you in Christ. Rather, because you are Christ's, you bear good fruit. The one who wants to appeal to his own efforts to either justify himself or keep himself justified is living by the law. And ultimately, he cuts himself off from the very life-giving gospel of the vine. It is Christ, the vine alone, that enables you to bear good fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. He enables you to do good works, to love others, to forgive others, to stand in your justification. How many souls think they are doing good works apart from Christ? But those works are not good, but they are futile, for their good intentions still end in death and eternal damnation. How many the world over think that those outside of Christ can remain faithful to a spouse when their faithfulness and their understanding of a good marriage is only according to a legal contract or subjective human emotions and not according to the marriage which is defined by Christ's love for His church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church rejoices in submitting to her trustworthy husband. How many think that apart from Christ they can forgive others? when true forgiveness is only that which God himself can work, so that only the one who is in Christ can actually forgive according to Christ's definition of forgiveness, namely the law appeased by his blood, rather than merely an earthly forgiveness that simply chooses to ignore the law's call for blood. See, friends, sanctification has much law to it. And apart from Christ, you can do nothing no good works, no love, no forgiveness, no faith in God. But sanctification's life is found in the gospel. Remain in me, Christ says. There's the gospel. Remain in me. Cling to Christ. I will remain in you. Remain in me and you will bear much fruit. Abide in me and my words abide in you and you will ask whatever you wish because your wish will be in accord with his words which are abiding in you. And therefore, ask whatever you wish and it will be granted. Friends, your ongoing baptismal life, that constant cleansing and pruning that keeps you steadfast in your already completed and certain justification, it all depends upon Christ. This is why we rejoice each year young members are welcome to the Lord's table. Not because they have done such a wonderful job of showing their faith so that God must welcome them to the table 
but because the vine, Christ himself, is strengthening the branch's attachment to himself. In preparing you for the Holy Supper, friends, Christ teaches you not to trust in yourself. Not to trust in yourself for keeping yourself holy, keeping yourself on the way to eternal life. But rather, he teaches you to learn that you depend not only on the work of the cross once in history, but also depend upon the benefits of that cross, the work of the cross and the benefits regularly delivered to you as the vine delivers water from the roots to the furthest branches. This is what each Christian ought to be taught lifelong, that they depend upon sanctification as taught in the third article of the baptismal creed. I believe and I depend upon the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church. I depend upon the Christian Church and I depend upon the communion of saints and I depend upon the forgiveness of sins and I depend upon the resurrection of the body. I depend upon. I have no other hope than the life everlasting. Each Christian ought to be taught how totally he depends upon the Word of Christ in baptism, in absolution, in the Holy Supper so that you withstand temptation to part from Christ. And instead you rejoice in remaining with and in Christ, who in his holy supper extends to you the nourishment and sustenance that keeps the branch from cutting itself off from the vine. Friends, the Christian will bear much fruit. If a branch is attached to the vine of the vineyard, grapes will necessarily show up. It's going to happen. Such is not the cause of your salvation, but the evidence of your salvation. Rejoice that the evidence confesses and speaks, but do not rejoice in the evidence as if it is your reason for your hope. Rather, remain in Christ, for apart from Him, you can do nothing. But in Him, as the Apostle says, I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. Why? For it is not I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's not the branch that brings life, but the vine whose life flows through the branch. Thanks be to God, confirmands, for through his precious means of grace, your Savior, your Savior faithfully and diligently keeps his word abiding in you, that you might also abide in him, even unto life everlasting. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The next text uh, that uh, Pastor Bestia will be preaching on is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 36 through 49, which reads, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, 
and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the text that forms the basis of this next sermon. Here again is Pastor Mark Bestuel. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text, and Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, to be most literal with this text, we ought to focus primarily on that phrase, that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, because that's really the phrase that is the one most directly about us. And we will get to it in the next 15 minutes or so. However, though the first part of our text is historically most accurately about the 11, we may at times apply scriptural reference about the 11 to ourselves because our lives need to be instructed by Jesus dealing with his disciples. And so a question to consider. Is it a sin to be troubled? We often read these Easter texts And we focus on the troubled bewilderment of the disciples or the women at the tomb. And we are tempted to turn the comfort and joy of the resurrection into a tongue-lashing of disappointment toward those who are troubled. How dare you be troubled, we think of the poor souls in the text. Can't you believe that Jesus is risen as he had taught you? So again, is it a sin to be troubled? Here Jesus asked the disciples, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? And remember, a similar question had been asked of Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Why do you weep? And the resurrection wasn't the only time such troubled hearts are described. Way back at the beginning of the same Gospel of Luke, the evangelist had used the same Greek word, tarasso, to describe the tongue-tied Zechariah. And again, tarasso to describe the pondering Mary as they were both troubled, terasso, troubled by the greeting of the angel Gabriel who came to foretell them of the births of John and Jesus. And perhaps the most well-known place this Greek word is used to describe unsteady hearts is when Jesus says to the twelve, let not your hearts be terasso, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And in all of these situations, it's easy for us to think that the Scriptures are simply chastising unbelief. However, as he entered Holy Week, we also hear the sinless Jesus say this of his sinless self. Now is my soul terasso. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name, he prays. The point is, friends, that you ought not read our text and hear Jesus chastising troubled minds. As if scolding them, why are you so unbelieving? Stand up like a man and have a firm heart. Nor ought you hear him address them with a condescending tone, as if he's annoyed that they're such cowards. Rather, you ought to hear Jesus address them as one having compassion on them. For he himself knows what it means to be troubled 
in his soul. But he also knows that the troubled soul does not calm itself, but is comforted by an objective truth outside itself. Comforted by, you might say, a comforter. And that's true for you too. We so often are told to deal with life's troubled hearts and fear-filled minds by having the gospel fill your heart. But be careful how you interpret that. Be careful to discern that properly. What does it mean for the gospel to fill your heart? There are two ways to internalize the resurrection. Only one is right. The first, the right way, is to believe it's objective truth. And to say, yes, this truth is for my benefit. This way is very good and very salutary. But there's a second way, a trap that we fall into often, by which we make the, object, the objective truth subjective. And we say, I just need to believe in this idea. I just need to make it work for me to calm my troubles. I just need to think positive thoughts. And if I think about this great story as if it's a, just some historical tradition, I'll calm myself down. That's a terrible manner of internalizing the gospel. The gospel is not psychology, nor is it philosophy. It's not an ancient story to make you feel better. It's a historical reality, an event in history outside of yourself, the consequences of which are objective truths to your fears and doubts about life. When Jesus asks, why are you troubled? He does intend to point them to the gospel of the resurrection, but not to say, use this as some positive psychological help, but rather to say the answers to your doubts the answers to your problems don't lie in your head. Rather, they lie in the hands of the one who is risen. Look at my hands, my side, touch me and see. This is just as I told you it would be, just as the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms foretold. Stop disbelieving. Stop trying to feel the gospel and calm your troubled hearts by your own psychological self-improvements. Rather, throw your needs at the feet of him who has conquered all, even death. And he will supply for your needs, even the calming of your heart. Friends, apply this to daily life to gain an understanding. How many of us, honestly, don't have fears in this life? We all have great fears. They come in all sorts of different forms, and many of you have come to your pastor with a particular form with which you suffer. How relentless is the devil in the use of fear, of troubled hearts, to stir and agitate our souls and make us wrestle so that we grow weary and begin to despair. You may, for example, fear losing your money or your house, and you might very well, which can't be resolved by what you think of Jesus, but is answered only by how Jesus, outside of you, objectively provides your daily bread to you. You may be troubled by the accusations of the devil, Perhaps he even torments and oppresses you, which is why your defense can't be merely what you think of Jesus, but only by how Jesus, your only defense is how Jesus objectively, outside of you, shields and defends you. Or is it merely a mental exercise to pray, deliver us from evil? You may be daily wrestling with the objective reality and impending reality of death, 
which is why your hope can't be in merely what you've internalized about Jesus or think about him on your deathbed, but must be in how Jesus objectively, outside of you, has conquered death and has promised to raise you from the grave. Notice, friends, the answer is not to take that, that mind, which has already proven its imperfection by the very fact that it fears, it's not to take that mind and to require or expect more of that sinful mind. Not to say, if only I think better thoughts, if only I think about the resurrection and really make myself believe in Jesus. How much deeper of a hole will we dig when we try to internalize the good news in a way as if it's only something within us and not an objective truth outside of us that carries all of human history? When we try to make our mental response to the gospel our comfort and strength rather than the gospel itself, the risen Christ himself who is our comfort and strength. In other words, don't say to yourself, if only I use Jesus' gospel to think better thoughts, then I will free myself from my doubt and despair. Rather say to yourself, because I cannot depend on my own strength, I will appeal to the one outside of me to strengthen and sustain me. I will not just think good thoughts to myself, which is really depending on yourself, but I will appeal to Jesus himself through prayer which teaches me to depend on someone outside of myself as he promises to be dependable in word and sacrament. Isn't this idea of, of appealing to someone through prayer, isn't this even what the sinless Jesus did when he said not? He didn't say, my soul is troubled, but I will remember that I am the Son of God. Rather, he said, my soul is troubled, but I will pray, Father, glorify your name. So also, friends, the resurrection of Jesus shows you that you may appeal to something steadfast and immovable and trustworthy outside of yourself. Oh Lord, my soul is troubled, troubled with fears, troubled with despair. My heart is in turmoil within me. And thus I appeal to the flesh and bone truth of Jesus crucified and risen for me. I appeal to something not just in my heart, but outside of me. Even as he said, see my hands and feet, touch me and see, I appeal to him and I throw my fears at his feet and I ask him to call my wavering heart and my troubled mind. Indeed, friends, this text teaches us to repent of our fear. For it's not that we are troubled that is the problem. Jesus himself was troubled. It's that we think we have reason to be troubled. There's your problem. As if Jesus is not trustworthy and true. Christ had reason to be troubled. He carried all the sins of all the world on his shoulders, and no one could take the burden from him. That's reason to be troubled. But really, what's your reason to be troubled? If Christ has conquered death itself and silenced sin itself, what greater enemy can you possibly have from which he can't defend you? This is why Jesus asks, why are you troubled? You suppose you see a ghost because you're not confident I'd overcome the grave like I promised? But touch me and see, he says, for as I am risen from the dead, then you have no need to be troubled. No need to fear the fears of life. They are all answered by and answered in me, 
he says. Notice he does not say, they are answered in your ability to believe in me. Your fears and your troubles are not answered by the supposed strength of your faith or by the power of positive thinking about Jesus. Your troubles are answered by Jesus himself. So throw the troubles at his feet and lay them in front of him, and he will deliver you. Our text says that when, notice, it says how faith came to these troubled disciples. It says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Not they opened their minds, but he opened their minds. Faith doesn't come from within. It doesn't come from your troubled mind figuring out how to calm itself and hold on to Jesus. If we are so broken in our sinful frames that we are driven to depression and despair over things of this world, how ought we expect our minds to steer us straight in the things of the life of the world to come? Instead of looking inside yourself for the answers, instead of rationalizing the Scriptures to calm your troubled mind, be calmed by the great truth that not only do the Scriptures come from outside of man by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but so also is the origin of faith itself. As the small catechism teaches you, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to Him. In other words, I cannot by my own depressed mind, my own despairing heart, my own troubled soul make use of the good news or believe it to be for my benefit. I cannot trust in me to make the gospel work for me. Rather, the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the one true faith. And if it is from outside of you that your sustenance comes, then all the baggage that is on the inside of you ought to be disowned, repented of, thrown at the feet of Christ, trusting that he will care for it for you. Here, my Lord, I cannot carry it. You carry it. For you have promised to remove it from me. Is it just coincidence that Jesus concludes by appealing to repentance and forgiveness of sins? by repentance, despairing of what's from you, and the forgiveness of sins, the good news coming from outside of you, from God and Christ. Thus it is written, he says, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Friends, for all the notions of how to proclaim a relevant sermon... Jesus puts them all to rest when he says, preach repentance and forgiveness. There's the answer to your doubts, to your despairs, to your timid hearts. You doubt and you fear and you are troubled because you depend on yourself rather than on Jesus Christ. You locate truth in yourself rather than outside of you in the risen Christ. You define life based on yourself rather than on the risen Christ. And so repent of yourself and receive forgiveness from the risen Christ. For where there is forgiveness, there is life and salvation. Not only is there what you think of life and salvation, but there is life and salvation itself. Outside of you. For you. 
just as objectively real and true as the risen Christ Himself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So what do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>